Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. So a strike is averted. Personally, I'm pleased. I don't want a railroad strike that would cost the country $2 billion a day. Adding and compounding to the inflation issues that aren't going anywhere. Tony Katz, good to be with you. Jim Garrity joins us right now from National Review, nationalreview.com. He had done really the yeoman's work breaking down what it was that was leading to the possibility of this strike, how it was gaining speed, and how the White House seemed... Well, ill-prepared in all parts of it to deal with it. And the question, of course, is did the White House have anything to do with bringing a deal together? So let's start with the the latest part first, Jim. Uh, Your take on this tentative deal that was put together in the early morning hours. Yeah, I am uh, like you, Tony. I am relieved. Uh, It certainly seems like we dodged a bullet. Uh, Much of what I've been trying to write about this week is just how far-reaching and devastating the supply chain issues were going to be had there been a strike that went, went ahead that would have started really around midnight tonight. Uh, we, you know, Now, maybe, and I also feel like this wasn't getting a ton of coverage. Now, maybe everybody assumed, eh, this is just brinksmanship. They'll reach a deal at the 11th hour. The consequences of a strike would be so bad, nobody wants that to happen. So maybe that's one of the reasons where I felt like there was this kind of uh, complacency in, in a lot of the coverage of this. And if you asked about the administration, uh, Labor Secretary Marty Walsh uh, announced this at about 5.08 a.m. Eastern. Uh, Biden, you know, issued a statement praising uh, everybody for working so hard. Negotiations went on for 20 years. So the administration will take a victory lap, and I think they are entitled to it. There's been this speculation. I saw a whole bunch of people over the course of the week saying, well, this was all part of the plan, and Biden wanted to help out his union buddies. If, if this was all part of some plan, I don't think they wanted to get this close because, you know, earlier in the week, you started seeing them saying, look, we're not going to ship anything hazardous because we're not sure we're going to have people there. We're not. I think as of noon yesterday, two of the biggest freight shippers said we're not taking anything else. Uh, Amtrak shut down a whole bunch of lines, and we all know how much Joe Biden loves Amtrak. So if this is some sort of administration vision, I don't think they expected it to get to the point where people were starting to shut down services in anticipation of a strike. The... The, yeah, the, you, you saw Amtrak saying we're not going to be able to take uh, uh, people on, on commuter rail because we have to take some of these freight lines. We saw that uh, they were already starting to secure uh, um, seriously dangerous uh, chemicals, chlorine, things you've written about and others uh, because uh, they were just going to be sitting there and they wouldn't be, be able to move. Now let's take a step back. This idea of brinksmanship. Sure, sometimes things come to the end before a deal is made in, in, in that game of chicken. But as we take a look at it, what could have been avoided here? Is there a story within about a level of, well, we didn't move fast enough on this. We didn't uh, believe uh, them over here. This is what happens when you don't have uh, experts in the field in the places of, of leadership and you have more ideologues than you have expertise. Is there any of that that can be looked at here on its face? Oh, absolutely. Uh, my colleague, Dominic Pino, has really, uh, his beat is really trade and supply chain stuff and economics, and he was following this stuff way back in July, warning that 
these negotiations were going badly. Now, they don't have to have a deadline like this. But, the, you know, the administration, you can go to the Department of Labor and say, we want a deadline for these negotiations so that they don't drag on forever. And the Biden administration did so. And people pointed out that they could have also set that deadline after the midterm elections. Uh, but they did chose to do so. Which I, but the sneaky suspicion is, was this seen as the sort of thing in which um, everybody would put pressure on them to, you know, make concessions, get a deal. We don't want this to happen six weeks before Election Day, things like that. Um, the other thing I think is a uh, – actually, there's, there's two curious fa- factors here. One is the people I know – I have a couple of readers who work in the railroad industry. And they are not usually pro-union voices. They are not, you know, uh, Randy Weidgarten fans or, or things like that. But they acknowledged the working conditions of railroad workers were really, you know, unple- unpleasant, primarily because of the lack of predictability of the schedule. The labor shortage that has affected all kinds of businesses has been bad in the railroad industry for a long time. Uh, you could accumulate vacation time, but you had to find somebody who could fill in for you when you're on vacation. And that's really tough when you are... Uh, experiencing a labor shortage, and you feel like you don't never have enough guys around to do the job as is, never mind if somebody wants to take time off. Uh, Time off for medical leave was another issue that uh, was a real sticking point. It appears that they've come to an agreement on that. So people who were um, not reflexive union defenders were pointing out that the unions had a a legitimate gripe, shall we say, um, and that uh, but also the recognition that, you know, by doing this, they were basically threatening to, uh, you know, derail, no pun intended, the entire U.S. economy and cause, you know, far-reaching problems from coast to coast. Talking to Jim Garrity of National Review. You can also check out his latest book, Gathering Five Storms, from Jim Garrity. That's available at Amazon.com or wherever fine books are sold, part of his Dangerous Click novel series. You've also been writing about how Joe Biden's been celebrating inflation by having a party uh, right there uh, on the White House grounds. We take a look today at the Associated Press, noting that the latest Associated Press NORC poll shows that support for Biden has gone from 36 percent to 45 percent. Joe Biden's on the move. It's all just, you know, everything is coming up. Joey, everyone's going to be wearing aviators, feeling good, eating ice cream cones. My God. God, Jim Garrity, everything is absolutely fantastic. Can you, if, in, in your dive uh, on this, how does inflation going up correlate with a popularity going up? Yeah. Well, the first thing I notice is that, yes, Biden has had a pretty good stretch over the last four or five weeks. Maybe he can go back six weeks. I, I would note that also coincides with him getting COVID really twice because he tested negative and tested positive again. And he went on two fairly lengthy vacations. I think the less people see of Biden, <laughs> absence makes the heart grow fonder. Um, and I wonder, he's like, oh, he's going to be out on the campaign trail, helping Democrats from coast to coast. I'm not so sure Democrats still want to. And by the way, let's observe that getting your approval rating up into the you know low 40s, uh, maybe mid 40s in a poll here and there, it's eh, better. But it's not really good. <laughs> it only looks good when you've been in the you know upper 30s. Um, but yeah, so earlier this week, he has this whole big event at the White House in, uh, you know, in the afternoon as the stock market is just utterly crashing. And, you know, so he does this and he's, you know, feeling great and everybody's, you know, uh, all these Democrats are feeling good. Yes, I am a subscriber to the print edition of the Wall Street Journal. 
And I just went through the headlines just in yesterday's print edition. A1, stocks sink on dashed inflation hopes. A6, Fed set for more tightening. A6, inflation hits families in the pantry. Uh, A7, energy bills are climbing sharply. A7, U.S. deficit widened from a year earlier. A7, U.S. household income stalled last year, census year. Like, it's all bad news. This is all, you know, 24 hours ago, we really thought we were going to have a, a freight rail strike. So... Biden is look. I understand a president always wants to put the best spin on things, and with Biden, he's had such a rough, you know, first couple of years in office that he's desperate to spotlight anything that's going right. Desperate to say, no, no, don't let all this inflation, you know, the high gas prices, high grocery prices, uh, don't let the border, don't let all that make you feel good. Look at how great things are going. And the problem with this is, maybe this is my, uh, you know, uh, Tony, I assume your, your listeners are Colts fans. You guys are used to winning and good times. As a Jets fan, I'm just always waiting for everything to fall apart. I'm always waiting for disaster to strike. So the moment you say things are going great, that's when you're tempting the fates. And that's when something will usually go uh, really wrong here. So it's not surprising that that, you know, we're going to have one more inflation report between now and Election Day, you know. If it's eight, if it's above eight percent, it's not good, right? You know, being slightly less than the worst it's been in forty years is not a good number. It's, it, I'm glad that it peaked. You know, that right there, Jim Garrity of National Review, NationalReview.com, G E R A G H T Y. That's 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 where you find Jim Garrity on, on the Twitter box. Uh, again, I'm thrilled. I'm overjoyed that this this strike isn't going to happen although uh, it's a tentative deal i guess things could go wrong a week from now a month from now i assume after the election uh, which is how some of this deal may have come down i would like for it to be done and, and like for it to be finished but there's a real conversation to be had about the lack of adults in the room there's a lack of adults in the room and that's true of the entire biden administration or obama part three it never should have gotten this far. I, I'm bothered uh, by this. Now, sometimes negotiations go to the wire. I'm not going to say no. That's true. But did it have to do this? And exactly what kind of edge are we all living on? And this is a part that I, I keep trying to engage a reminder of. We do live on a razor's edge. The, the systems that we have are, are, are precious and, and, and they work because we work them. And little things can cause huge, huge, huge amounts of distraction. This was thankfully avoided. Is it something that could have been avoided its entirety? And is this just an example of dumb luck versus smart skill? Based on this administration's actions, I'm going with dumb luck. What other calamities are happening? that are happening because of the inability to properly plan, the inability to properly reach out, the inability to properly deal because you don't have people who know how to deal. Think of all the experts who talked to us about COVID. How many of those people lied? A tremendous number. So they weren't experts, they were liars. How many experts told us that, oh, Hunter Biden's laptop, that's the, got all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. Not experts. Liars. I don't want to build something out of nothing. I'm glad there's no strike. I'm glad it's one less thing we have to think about. Now we can think about the porous border. Now we can think about radical inflation. 
And yet nothing happens with those things because the experts tell us that the border is secure. And then the Biden administration tells us, thank goodness we passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Let's have a party while inflation goes up. Maybe my theory, my thesis has just a wee bit of merit to it. Maybe, just maybe, I might actually be on to something. Find everything, guys. Make sure you go to locals, tonycats.locals.com and get all the cool stuff. Keep it here. This is Tony Katz today. Apparently, he's also going to sing you a single, uh, not you particularly, but Republicans mm-hmm. out for opposing the hiring of 87,000 IRS agents, which are critical to this plan. What do you say? Mm-hmm. Well, I say that the Internal Revenue Service is uh, not exactly a model of efficiency. I can't think of an agency in Washington that's more dysfunctional. Uh, They're going to spend that money to to hire 87,000 people, not to improve uh, service to the American people, but to to target them. And to give you an idea of how many people they're adding after President Biden gets through with growing IRS, the IRS will have more soldiers or agents than the Israeli army, and some say the entire army in Great Britain. Uh, And I don't think they're there to try to make our lives better. They're going to try to uh, raise taxes indirectly on the American people, the middle class, by uh, auditing them and when the people can't afford to defend themselves, hiring a lawyer, they're just going to collect all this extra money and give it to the Green New Deal. That's Senator John Kennedy. I do like Senator John Kennedy. The 87,000 agents is, is an issue. It should be noted that this is not a doubling of the IRS because we're not accounting for attrition. Those IRS agents who are going to come off the payroll, they're going to retire, all sorts of things. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Great to be with you at TonyKatz.Locals.com. Find everything, TonyKatz.Locals.com. I am not saying I want more IRS agents. I am just stating a fact about this idea of, of doubling is isn't isn't there that's not what's happening but are they there to attack uh the 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 american people well yes of course you want me to take uh secretary yellen janet yellen treasury secretary you want me to take her word on on this subject really today i want to spend some time discussing how the new irs funding in the Inflation Reduction Act will make these types of investments possible, as well as its impact on the American economy. But first, I want to begin by speaking about the IRS itself. As our nation's revenue collection agency, the IRS is a foundation of our government and our society. Can we just, for a moment... The IRS is the foundation? An agency. The IRS is a foundation of our government and our society. So much so that it didn't get put into effect until 1913. What? Can we just stop pretending that we're all on the same side? Can we just stop pretending? <laughs> 
that these people aren't just the enemy of just free thought? No one, no one says this. No one believes this. What in the world? That is an ignorant, laughable, pathetic, nonsensical, garbage statement. Foundation of our government and our society. I mean, she spent serious amounts of time cheering the IRS. Well, the country sheltered in place, many of you made sure the business of government continued. You worked long hours to deliver relief to American households. This includes three rounds of economic impact payments and the monthly child tax credit. The work that you did ensured that families got through a once in a century event. Step aside, nurses. It was the IRS who were the real heroes. I can't wait to see those heroes work here signs. Put all around DC. Oh, this is special. I mean, this is surreal. Surreal propaganda special. Why do people distrust governments? Oh, I don't know. Maybe all of that. But she's, she, she's winding up for the home run hit. In addition to an IRS that can finally serve the American people, we will also have an IRS that makes sure that everyone pays their fair share. The world has become more complex, and enforcing tax laws is just not as simple as it was a few decades ago. Average tax returns for large corporations now can reach 6,000 pages. And more complicated partnerships have skyrocketed. Maybe you should make it easier for people to do their taxes. Why isn't that the solution? They're not paying their fair share. You mean they're cheating on their taxes. Do I really think you're going to go through the 6,000-page tax return? Or do I think you're going to just do a little bit more of a looking at the two-page tax return and decide uh, that a couple over there uh, has to pay an extra 300 bucks and a couple over there has to pay an extra 1000 bucks? And, you know, they'd love to fight you because they don't think they owe the money. But, man, hire a lawyer and the expense. You know what? It's not the end of the Just write them the check. Damn government. Just write them the check. That's what's going to happen. You're really going to go over the 6,000-page uh, return? That That's what you're really going to focus on? Maybe a couple of high-profile cases. But everyone knows it's going to be the people who make uh, 40000 50000 100000 a year. That's where the audits are going to come from. Because those that's the low-hanging fruit, baby. That's the easy stuff. Dear goodness gracious. Cheering. Cheering. The coming abuse. That's... That is a super hot take, Secretary Yellen. Well played. This is Tony Katz today. Well, of course this is about creating a de facto gun registry. The pressuring of the credit card companies to change the category code for firearm stores. So instead of being sporting goods, they're gun stores. So you can track who has made what purchases. I mean... That's that that's that's fact. 
I don't. I can't imagine that anybody is claiming somehow that this isn't exactly what it is that that's happening. Tony Katz, Tony Katz, today. It's good to be with you. Now you guys know uh, that I come from the world of credit card processing before radio. Uh, this is what my, my family did. This is what I uh, uh, did uh, for a while. Uh, you know, my, my, my father, 84, is still working. My, my mother's 75. Dear sweet Diane, my father's 84. They're still doing this. And I, I don't know if you've ever had parents in, in a business, and it's, it's not a billion-dollar business or anything uh, like that. You know, I'm, I'm not an heir to some kind of outrageous fortune, but I help. And as your parents get older, you find you're helping in, in different ways. So I've, I've really been getting more and more uh, into it. And this comes out. I've, I've received phone calls from everybody. Like, what does this mean? I'm like, well, first, well, none of us are 100% sure how necessarily the code kind of conversation is going to work. But the, the concern is massive. Stephen Gutowski joins us right now. He is the man behind The Reload. TheReload.com. Fantastic conversations about firearms and what's going on in the world of the Second Amendment. Credit card companies won't respond to questions on new gun store code as Republicans demand answers. Stephen joins us right now. Um, Talk to me about what it is Republicans have been asking for and what it is uh, that the uh, federal government has not responded to. Yeah, so the, the, a group of 100 Republican congressmen sent a letter to Visa, which asked a you know a series of questions, basically about why they made this code change or why they agreed to implement it, uh, basically, and and then what they plan to do, how they plan to actually use it, um, especially given that the advocates behind this change want to use this data to flag suspicious uh, purchasing patterns and send them to law enforcement uh, in the hopes of stopping you know, mass shooters. So you know, that's what they're asking for is a series of questions they sent over basically in line with what's your plan, why are you doing this? As you write... Of course, and this is uh, what the Republican congressman sent to Visa, of course, there is no accepted, consistent, scientific, or legitimate way to determine from this data what is and what is not a suspicious purchase. But it's very clear from Letitia James, the Attorney General of New York, from Senator Elizabeth Warren, the Senator from Massachusetts, this is all about tracking suspicious packages or or suspicious purchases, I, I, I should say. Have they given a definition of what a suspicious purchase is? No, uh, they haven't. There's been a lot of talk about this. The idea kind of originated with uh, the New York Times back in 2018, where they did a series of stories pointing out that mass shooters had, in some cases, had used credit cards to buy their firearms. But, I mean, obviously, you know, you're talking about uh, buying a couple of guns over the course of a week or or even several months, uh, which... You know, that's going to include it's obviously not evidence of any wrongdoing, especially because all purchases of guns made with credit cards are at gun dealers where you need to go through a background check to complete the sale. Like we already have a process for checking up on whether or not you can own a gun before you buy one at a retailer. But um, they haven't played out any specific uh, criteria for what they would consider to be suspicious. And, you know, as the Republicans point out here, it would be very difficult to think of one because, I mean, 
a lot of Americans own guns and a lot of Americans use credit cards. So a lot of Americans use credit cards to buy guns, and it doesn't mean that they've done anything wrong. Talking to Stephen Gutowski, he is the mind behind the Reload.com, a fantastic resource uh, about firearms and what's going on in the world of 2A. Uh, the idea of this being a de facto gun registry, I start with the thesis of, well, of course it is. Uh, but talk me off the ledge. Are people like myself, people out there who are concerned about this and worried about this, are they worried about nothing? Well, I wouldn't say that you're worried about nothing. Uh, I would say that that's the end goal that they want to see. You've already seen the New York Times, uh, the writer who sort of initiated this whole uh, discussion. Um, his name's Andrew Sorkin. And he he already reacted to it by saying, well, this is a good first start, first step. And what we need next is uh, for the banks and credit card companies to have an uh, detailed look into the basket. Like right now, all the MCC code does, all this code change does is, is uh, list uh, gun retailers under their own code. There's hundreds of these codes. They have them for, you know, bike stores and and uh, grocery stores and every other kind of store. They don't tell the credit card companies what you're actually buying at those stores. So if you go in and buy a safe at a gun store, it's going to look the same to the credit card company as if you bought, you know, a dozen guns. They don't know the difference yet, not at this point. And and so that's where, like, that's another reason why this theory they have of trying to track suspicious purchases doesn't really make sense because the MCC code doesn't actually do that. You don't see what the person is buying. You just have a general industry that they're spending money in. Uh, and so you need more steps, which is what they want to do, to be fair. Like, that's what the gun control advocates who push for this change, they want, in addition to this, they want to be able to see exactly what you're buying at the stores and then use that uh, to further um, uh, be able to track what you're, what you're, what guns you're buying. Now, but that uh, hasn't happened yet. The, 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 yes, you are correct. And I, I described this the other day. There are an unlimited number of MCC codes for all different sorts of, of businesses. And when I talk about the tracking, as you discuss it there, it, it's, it's the part two. It is the never ending push desire, uh, uh, maneuvering to work around the Second Amendment. This is because they have come, they, the, the anti gun zealots, as I will refer to them as. Maybe you refer to it differently, and that's fine. Uh, they have come to the conclusion that they can't do away with the Second Amendment and that the Supreme Court will not be on their side when it comes to the Second Amendment, whether we're talking about the McDonald decision, uh, we're talking about Heller, whether we're talking about uh, the New York uh, State uh, Pistol and Rifle Association uh, case that just was uh, adjudicated this past session. They cannot Except the fact that the Second Amendment says what it says and means what it means, and the objective is to prevent you from being able to make a gun purchase, including maybe leaking information about you, maybe making the claim that you've got too many purchases, too many, too much ammunition purchased, therefore you shouldn't be allowed this, it's suspicious, so we have the right to take your firearms, and we have the right to ask questions and maybe hold up uh, your, your, your rights, never mind whether or not you think it will get to that part. Am I correct in the first part that they can't figure out how to do away with the Second Amendment, so they're looking for ways to get around it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair reading of what 
uh, you know, obviously I'm sure they would uh, argue that they're not against the Second Amendment, but they certainly do want a lot of restrictions, which the Supreme Court has said are not possible under the Second Amendment. So, you know, it's maybe semantics there. But either way, like, this is part of a larger fight over financing of the gun industry, uh, which has been ongoing for quite a while now. You had under the Obama administration, there was Operation Choke Point, which sort of uh, tried to pressure financial institutions into not doing business with disfavored industries uh, and one of those industries was the gun industry and and so you know that this is not a new thing you've seen uh pressure uh against major financial institutions like Citibank or the Bank of America to not uh do business with gun manufacturers that's been an ongoing fight for several years now uh with some of the with those two banks making concessions to gun gun control advocates saying they won't work with uh, you know, major gun companies, unless they implement these, uh, they stop making AR-15s, for instance. Um, and, and so now you're seeing this extended to the purchasing side of things, to gun buyers, not just gun companies. And it, it's sort of part of a larger effort to restrict gun sales in America without going through uh, the legislative process. Let me change gears on you, uh, Stephen, talking to Stephen Gutowski of The Reload, thereload.com. Uh, An interesting story that I caught over there that I, I, I must admit uh, made me do a double take. Smith & Wesson sales collapse. All we have heard about is the increase in sales of firearms. And your story discusses that Smith & Wesson saw a 69% decline in sales year over year. Uh, is is this a COVID-related story? Is this a uh, brand kind of falling behind uh, uh, others, whether it be Sig Sauer or others? What is the story here? Yeah, I don't think it's a Smith and Wesson, uh, you know, in particular issue. Ruger uh, reported their earnings a little bit earlier in the year, and they had a similar drop off uh, in sales, you know, compared to last year. I think it's what it's sort of a continuation of what you're talking about at the beginning. There, you had two straight years of just incredible gun sales, and these companies were raking in record profits. Smith and Wesson had the first billion-dollar revenue year of any gun company in history uh, in 2021. And so uh, now you're seeing that start to taper off. This, it's a pretty – clearly it's a pretty significant tapering off uh, in that, you know, they're down 69%, which is, uh, you know, n- not a good thing for any company. But it's, it's also something that they aren't blindsided by. Uh, you know, they knew this was going to happen eventually, that that, the, that level of sales was not going to be sustained forever. The, you know, the gun industry is very cyclical. Uh, cyclical. You know, you, you get these uh, boom and bust periods. And uh, the important thing, I think, to notice about it is that the now that we're entering in that tapering off period, you're still seeing sales higher than they were before uh, the pandemic, before 2020, before the rioting. Uh, which drove a lot of sales, you're still seeing the the new normal elevated above what it was during the Trump years, for instance. Have we seen a uh, pricing come back into line? For example, we saw ammunition become very, very expensive over the last few years. Are you seeing that come back into line now? Yeah, that's a good question. I wish it was. <laughs> I wish that uh, ammunition <laughs> pricing was back down to what it was in, you know, 2017 or something, but it's not, uh, you know, yeah, it's not, 
it's not as crazy as it was a year or two ago. There's more supply now. You know, the, the industry is affected by all the same pressures that other industries from the supply chain issues to inflation. And so you're still seeing prices that are above what they were back in 2019, 2018. But, but they're at least not accelerating any further. And you're seeing supply come back into the stores. And you're probably seeing prices you know, come back down a little bit. At least you're not out there scrambling to pay, you know, a dollar around for 45 or something. Um, you know, you're, they're not at the highs that they were, the crazy levels during the shortages, but they're still elevated over what they were beforehand. Steve Gatowski, com. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More coming up. I'm Tony Katz. We're going to see where these markets end up, whether they continue to go south. Markets were down a little bit last last I checked. I don't even want to look. I don't. I don't please don't make me. I, I don't want to. It's like in the same way I don't look at my 401k. Oh, oh, shame on me. Shame on me. I should be investing in things that are important like plastics. That's the future, baby. Tony Katz. Tony Katz. Today, Roger Federer retiring from tennis first serena now federer man you're losing your you're losing your big stars there but federer's 41 there comes a moment where uh, physically uh, you know uh, that that you just you just can't keep up with with the speed you just you, you you physically can't do it you can still play better than the vast majority of the planet <laughs> but you, you you just you just can't keep up with with, with those things. You, you just can't do it. Uh, and I I shared this earlier. I I I must again tell you this this division that we're all feeling in the country. This this isn't a joke. This isn't um, this isn't something that's in your head. This is happening in real time. That that what you're witnessing on on name the subject the demonizing of people you disagree with is happening and and, and this from Maisie Hirono the senator from Hawaii holy mackerel the word hypocrites it doesn't even go far enough to call them out on what they're doing. This is an outright attack on women in this country. That is how I see it. That is how more and more women and those who support our right to make decisions about our own bodies. That is how we see it. And why? <laughs> because that's what's happening. Madam President, I yield the floor, but clearly, you know, this is a um, literally call to arms in our country. Well, good thing we don't celebrate violent rhetoric. You disagree on abortion? You believe there should be some level of ban on, on abortions? We shouldn't be a country celebrating murder, and, and that's a call to arms. Lindsey Graham, I think, was wrong to introduce the legislation. I didn't think it was necessary. I think it, it it kept a subject that if he was trying to solve, it kept it alive, right? That that's that's what I I think happened here. But his legislation is very much in line with where the world is on um, 
restrictions on abortion, like very much in line. So why in the, why in the world would you make the claim that it's extreme when it when it's not? It's it's just not extreme based on uh, the, the 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 globe. Why would you say this? And well, let's let's follow up. Call to arms. Violent Maisie Hirono. By the way, there's polling to the extent that you believe that any polling. 58.7% of voters expressed the belief that Biden has divided the country during his time in office. If that's the case, how come we have others saying that uh, Democrats' chances are so much better in the midterms? Why do we see AP polling that shows that Biden's approval has gone up from 36% to 45%? Maybe we should recognize that he's still under 50%. Maybe from 36%, the only place to go was up. He's dividing the country, and we like it? That's bad news. Don't ask me to be a fan of that. Find everything, TonyCats.locals.com. Tomorrow, everyone, take care.